I want to start off with the question this morning. I think it's a pretty simple question, probably a question that you have the answer for. But what is healthy and what is unhealthy? What is healthy and, and what is unhealthy? And for most of us, we know this, right? We've been taught this or we kind of had this kind of natural inclination to understand, okay, we know what's healthy and what's not healthy. We know an apple is better for us than a candy bar. It might not taste better, but it's better for us. We understand that drinking water is going to be better than drinking soda. We kind of get these general rhythms of life. We understand these, these general truths of life, what's healthy and what's not healthy. But the truth is sometimes, it may not often, but sometimes we get this wrong. Sometimes we think what's healthy for us is actually unhealthy, and sometimes what we think is unhealthy for us is actually healthy, or at least pretty good for us. And this has happened all throughout human history. In fact, if we back up in our history books, we learned something pretty interesting about something in the United States that we believe was healthy for us. You see, in the early 1900s, there was a moment in time when we believed as a people that radiation was healthy for us. So here's the story. It was in the early 1900s that they found a hot springs that was radioactive. And they thought if they took a dip in these radioactive hot springs that it would have medicinal benefits. Can you imagine this? But at this point in time, they believed this was healthy. In fact, they took it so far that what they did was they started bottling this radioactive water and selling it to people for its health benefits. And you already know what's going to happen, right? This quickly ended when this guy who was drinking three bottles of this radioactive water a day died and his jaw fell off his face. See, sometimes what we think is healthy is not so healthy. Now, if you pay attention during history class growing up, you probably know a few more of these. And you probably know that at one point in time, as a cough medicine, they were marketing heroin. Heroin as a cough medicine. And you probably know this too, that Coca-Cola used to have a very special ingredient. And it was not caffeine, and it was not sugar. It was cocaine. Can you believe this was the reality that we lived in at one point in time? But we're not exempt from it. It still happens. In fact, today, Coca-Cola got in trouble again. They got sued because they sold this product and still sell this product. You've probably heard of it. Maybe you have it. Maybe you're drinking it right now. It's called vitamin water. You've heard of vitamin water before? The vitamin water was marketed as a health drink. But Coca-Cola got sued because in each serving of vitamin water is 33 grams of sugar, which means vitamin water is more likely to make you obese than healthy in any form whatsoever. And they lost that lawsuit in a heavy, heavy way. Sometimes what we think is healthy is unhealthy. Sometimes what we think is unhealthy is healthy. Sometimes what we think is true is false. And sometimes what we're told is false is absolutely true. And that's why moments like this are so important. That's why moments like these are so important because this is what we're doing. We're gathering as a family of faith. We're gathering in this space, whether it's in person or online, to dig into God's word. And God's word is our North Star. It is eternal truth that is eternally relevant, given to us by the God that has always existed, who knows the past, present, and future, so he never has to change, he never has to shift, 
His truth is always the center point. It's always the line where we can find relevancy and truth in every area of our life. It's the place where we can find health in every area of our life without having to worry that because of the latest opinion or the latest finding that something's going to change. The Bible is always relevant. It's always true, and it's never changing, just like God is always relevant, and he never changes. So today we're going to go into God's word in the book of Hebrews and find this eternal truth. And this is how the writer begins. Let mutual love continue. So as you probably noticed, we're not starting at the beginning of Hebrews. We're actually starting in the last chapter of Hebrews. And this is a very large sermon. And by the time we get to chapter 13, we're actually getting the bullet points of the talk. If you've been around church for a while, you kind of know the rhythms of how this works, right? The pastor gets up here, a teacher gets up here, and, and they talk quite a while, maybe longer than you want them to. But if you pay attention to the very, very end, what do they do? They kind of give you a synopsis of all the major points, don't they? Which means if you fall asleep and you wake up for the last couple minutes, you're probably going to get the, the main meat of the conversation and probably at least glean something from it. But you're used to this, aren't you? Because even when you were in high school, this is what your mom did. If you're a mom in the room, this is what you did, right? You had to communicate something important to your kids, and so you sat them down at dinner or right before bed, and you gave them all the details. This is what I need you to do. This is what's coming up. And you talk to them for about an hour, and then they go to bed or they leave the dining room table. And then the next morning, what do you do before they're heading off to school? Right, as they're going into the car, you open up the door and you shout all the three major points that you wanted them to know and remember. Maybe it sounds something like this. Don't forget to take your brother to soccer practice after school. Don't forget to bring your project home. It's due on Monday. Don't forget to come home right away because we're packing to go to grandma's house. And you shout all of the major things. And guess what that teenager does? They don't even turn and face you, do they? Right? They walk away and they probably do one of these. Right? I hear you. Leave me alone. And under their breath, they're probably saying, or at least they're probably thinking, you talked at me for three hours last night. I get it. You don't have to tell me. I won't forget. Guess what happens? They forget. Right? They go to school. They see that cute boy. They see that cute girl. They're excited to see their friends. Their friends are talking about that new coffee shop that just opened up down the road. We've got to go. And they jump in their car and they go to the coffee shop. The little brother is stuck at school. They're not packed and their project is tucked away in their locker, right? They've missed the whole thing. And when we enter into this section of Hebrews, this is exactly what's happening. This person who's communicating this sermon is watching the audience and reading the audience and they know they aren't getting it, but they're getting to the end. And so they start giving them these bullet points. It starts off by saying, let mutual love continue. And just like your teenage son, your teenage daughter, or you when you were a teenager, guess what they're doing? We got it. We just heard you talk at us for three hours. We need to love people. We need to love God. We get it. But the problem was, they didn't get it. The problem is, most time, we don't get it. Because when we hear this idea of love, we pour in our definition of love. 
When we think about mutual love, we think, okay, yeah, it's a, it's a transactional love. I love them, they love me. If they don't love me, I don't really have to worry about them. In fact, if they hate me, I not only don't have to love them, but I actually can hate them back, right? It's a transactional love. And when we live in that space, we find out that not only do we have a transactional love, but we have a very self-serving love. We live in a space where we love them if they love us. We'll get them a gift if they get us a gift. I'll love them if they can promote me. I'll love them if I get better social standing. I'll love them if, if they offer me something. But when it comes to our faith and the author of love and the definition of love lived out in Christ Jesus, we actually see that his life and his word is the exact opposite of that. It's not a self-serving love. In fact, it's a self-sacrificial love, which is why it's so challenging and so scary. Why sometimes we kind of want to shut our ears because it challenges us to live very, very differently. Because how did Christ live? Well, Christ befriended people who no one wanted to be friends with. Christ had real hard conversations that got him into trouble because he loved people too much to not talk to them. He healed people who he knew would never say thank you. And he went to the cross to show the ultimate act of love for people who didn't care for him whatsoever. This is what love looks like. This is the love we're talking about. A Christ-like, self-sacrificial love. And this author, this sermon giver, this teacher knows these people aren't getting it. They know that most time I don't get it. They know that most time you don't get it. And that's why they're not done. And they continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. You see, there's, there's a very, very not so subtle shift that's happening right now. It's that shift from a self-serving transactional love to a self-sacrificial love. Because what does this person say that who is the people that we should love in, in this conversation? Strangers, which offer us pretty much nothing, right? If, if you help a stranger at Culver, someone holding a sign or at Walmart or whatever the situation is, you're not going to get anything in return. You might have a story. They might say thank you. Maybe in very rare moments, somehow you strike up a, a pseudo- friendship and you become friends on Facebook, but most of the time you are doing something where you're not going to get anything in return. In fact, in the day when this was written to this original audience, it was even more so than that because what they were hearing is not help the person holding the sign at Culver's or at Walmart. What they were hearing was we need to help the people who are traveling through our town and our village who need a place to stay. Now think about that. To have a stranger show up on your doorstep and say, hey, we need a place to say, me and my family. To invite them into your home is to completely change everything about your schedule and your life. You're going to eat the food that they want to eat now. You have to follow their schedule now. You have to invite people in who don't look like you, don't act like you. Maybe they don't even speak the same language as you. You're shuffling your entire life around to serve them. This is the challenge here. 
And so when the people hear this, you know what they're thinking. Well, what do I get? Right, if I behave this way, if I love this way, there's gotta be something. What, what is the blessing that I get? What do I get? And so this writer of Hebrews says, well, you might entertain some angels without knowing it. Now, this is an allusion to a very rare moment in the Old Testament. There were a couple times we have recorded where Abraham and Lot, they brought strangers into their house and they probably didn't realize it, maybe never really knew it, that these were actually angels. And they treated them well and they loved them, made all these sacrifices to care for these people. And then because of that, God blessed them in an amazing way. You see, when the author writes this and says this, he's saying, maybe you'll be blessed. But the problem is we'll never know. Right, if you invite a stranger into your house, if you serve somebody at your local Walmart or your local Culver's, whatever that is, you'll never know if they're an angel or not. And that's the point. You see, if you view everyone as a representative of God, if you view everyone as, as a dignitary, then you will learn to love like Christ loved. If everyone you engage with and interact with and see on the street, if you view them as somebody who's potentially a messenger from God, you will treat them very, very, very differently. Well, the sermon continues. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. Those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured. So the author continues on this idea of self-sacrifice because who are prisoners? Prisoners are people who are locked in a space where they can't serve you even if they want to. Because that's the point, right? We've taken away their freedom to do anything that they might want to do. That's the punishment here. So to serve a prisoner means you're not going to get anything in return, right? They can't offer you anything. Now, you might remember if you were here last week and if you're listening closely to Pastor Eric, you might remember that, that the prison system during the day when this book was written is very different than our prison system. In our modern day, if you go into prison, they're gonna clothe you, they're gonna feed you, they're gonna take care of your medical needs. They might even entertain you. And on your worst days and your stressed out days, you might think, hey, that sounds actually pretty good. But I don't have to think about it. They'll take care of me. I just gotta exist. But in this day, when this was written, the prisoners that this author is writing about, this teacher is teaching about, in this day it was very different. You see, in this moment, when you would be put into prison, no one was gonna take care of you except for your family. If you wanted clothes, they had to bring it. If you wanted food, they had to bring it. If you needed medical supplies, they had to bring it. And if they did not bring it, you would rot in prison until you would die. These are people who can offer you nothing. And the truth is, it's kind of just an inconvenience to go through all this stuff for people who have done something wrong. In fact, maybe they did something wrong to you. Maybe they disenfranchised their family, which they would be in real deep trouble because then no one's coming to serve them. But look at what the sermon says. Remember them. Even if they've done something specifically to you, remember them, go to your family, serve them, clothe them, feed them, take care of them. But this is a much larger concept, isn't it? Because it doesn't say, remember your brother, remember your sister, remember your dad, remember your mom when they're in prison. It says, remember those, everyone who's in prison and serve the people that will give you nothing in return. Well, the author's not done. 
Let marriage be held in honor by all and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled for God will judge fornicators and adulterers. So we've made our way through this conversation about self-sacrifice. We started with strangers. We saw how inconvenient that could be. Talked about prisoners. We can see how inconvenient that can be and they can offer us nothing. But then we run into marriage. And if you're like me, you kind of wrestle with this because this is different, isn't it? Because in marriage, if I'm honest, I, I get something, don't I? I get a spouse, I, I get a ring. Maybe I have a combined income. We can help each other out, we can serve each other. Hopefully I can have a lifelong friend. So when I think of marriage, I think, you know what? I, I get a lot from it. And sometimes this is how we view marriage. We view it as transactional. I get married, I get this beautiful person, this handsome person, this great person, this funny person. And we, we think, okay, this is what I get in marriage, which is precisely the problem with most marriages. You see, if you get married to just get, you're going to run into a lot of problems. Because if you are in marriage just to get something, as soon as you don't get something, guess what happens? You don't want to be in that marriage anymore. Right? As soon as they don't love you quite as much as you think that you love them, if they don't serve you quite as much as you think that you serve them, if they don't offer as much as you offer them, then you start justifying all sorts of actions, don't you? You start justifying that escape, that addiction, that coping mechanism. You start justifying that flirtation at work. You start justifying that adultery because after all, if they would just treat you better, if they just loved you better, if they were just on equal playing field, this would have never happened. You start justifying those divorce papers. But Christian marriage, Christ-centered marriage, is not a transaction. It's not about I love you until they don't love me. Christ-centered marriage, a Christian marriage, a true Christian marriage, is not about what you get. It's about what you give. You see, true Christian marriage is a submission competition. I want to serve my wife. That's my goal. That's my only goal. I want to serve my wife. And hopefully she wants to serve me. And the competition that we get into in marriage, hopefully if it's done right, is I want to outserve them and they want to outserve me. And that gives us a beautiful outcome, a Christ-like outcome. I'm going to serve no matter what the outcome and hopefully that service and that sacrifice and that love and that commitment drives them to do the exact same back. Well, this writing continues. Keep your lives free from the love of money. So now we've made our way to money. This is the, the fourth point of this big outline. We've worked through strangers, and that didn't seem like that big a deal because how often is that going to happen? We've talked about prisoners once again. It doesn't seem like that big a deal because it's a little bit bigger commitment, but maybe not that big. Then we talked about marriage, of course. This is a huge undertaking. Maybe 40 plus years if we're lucky, maybe 50 plus years if we're lucky of sacrificing for somebody and serving somebody. But money, this is the biggest conversation. And it's the biggest conversation put here, and I don't think it's an accident. I think everything was building to this moment. Because money, well, that's in every area of our life, isn't it? 
We're either working to make money or we're spending money. And there's very little in between, right? One or the other is happening at all times. It, it works its way into every area of our life. You don't leave your house unless you have cash with you, a debit card with you, or a credit card with you, right? You are ready and prepared because money makes its way into every area of our life, and that's why it's the perfect conversation to have during a sermon series like this, because this is the conversation that we've been having. How do we find health? How do we find a new perspective? How do we find new life in every area of our everyday life? That's the question that we're wrestling with today. How do we find financial health? Well, this is what the author says. This is keep your lives free from the love of money. Now, what is the implication? The implication is not that we can't have any money or that we should have all the money. The implication is not that you're a good person or a bad person if you're rich or if you are a good person or a bad person if you're poor. That, that's not the implication. Notice that's not what it's saying. And, and scripture never says that. The fear is not that you have money or don't have any money. The concern is that you fall in love with the money that you have. Because that's not the goal, is it? What was the goal in this conversation? The goal was mutual love. The goal was self-sacrificial love. And if we get wrapped up in money, guess what we can't do? We can't bring ourselves to sacrifice for others. In fact, we can land in a ditch on either side of this conversation, can't we? If we think money is the problem, or if we get so wrapped up in money, we can't serve people because we're, we're spending all of our time making it, and then we're spending all of our time protecting it, and we can't serve anyone. Or maybe we fall into the other ditch, and the other ditch is just as troublesome. If we kind of think, well, money is evil, so I just stay away from money. I don't want to fall in love with money, so I'll just avoid it completely then we don't work at all. Then we don't have any resources. And then we just find ourselves taking from others. But money is important. And the reason money is important is because money allows us to serve. It allows us to show others that we love them and to care for others. Which means if we land in this ditch where we have all the money but we don't give any money away, then we can't serve people. And if we fall in this ditch where we don't have any money because we choose not to work, well, we can't serve anyone either. So what's the healthy way? Well, this is what scripture tells us. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? The answer is to be content. To be content with what God has given you. Now, this doesn't mean be apathetic or be lazy. That is definitely not the point. The point of being content is that we need to, as Christians, as followers of Christ, if we want to deal with money in a healthy way, we need to ask two very important questions. What has God given me? And how does he want me to use it? What has God given me? And how does he want me to use it? You see, the truth is, everything that you have is a provision from God. He gives every one of us time. We have a lifetime. Those lifetimes are different, but we all have time. We all have 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. We all have time and we all have talent. Those talents are different, but when we use that time and that talent, we produce treasure. We all have different amounts of treasures, 
but it does not exempt us from this conversation. If you have a whole bunch or if you have not very much, you still have to ask yourself these two very important questions. What has God given me? Which the answer is absolutely everything. And what does he want me to do with it? See, the bottom line of today is this. When it comes to your financial health or really anything in in your life is this. You need to come to grips with really three things. The first one is this. God loves you. God loves you. No matter what you've done, God loves you. No matter how, how rough your life has been, God loves you. No matter how selfish you've been, God loves you. No matter how giving you, you've been, God loves you. God loves you. And God loves everyone else. Which means God loves all the people that you cannot stand. Don't look like you. Don't act like you. Don't vote like you. Don't smell like you don't speak the same language as you, don't like the same music as you. God loves everyone. And you know what God really loves? When the people that he loves, loves the other people that he loves and sacrifices for them in every area of their life, including their financial resources. And when we learn to serve others and sacrifice for others like Christ sacrificed for each and every one of us, we will find the healthy way.